Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's CW, and this week on the Top Docs Radio Show, I sat down with Dr. Ketan Patel, a podiatrist with the Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia, working for the practice out of their Buckhead location. This practice has been in the Atlanta area for over 30 years. They've got over 20 locations scattered around the Atlanta metro area, so finding an excellent foot and ankle specialist near you is easy with the Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia. Coming up, Ketan talks about the culture of the practice and why it was an easy choice for him to land there. Check it out. Joy Hagen is one of our staff members. She's been with the practice since inception. And I remember when I met her, I asked her how long she'd been with the practice. And when she told me, um, when she gives you a strong number like 20 years, you know there's something special about that place. Um, for her to stay around for 20-some years uh, showed a lot about the specialness of the practice, the family-oriented right. nature. Yeah, that's a big deal that someone yeah. would stick with you that long. Yeah, the culture was really neat. And that's how I got into practice. And then after that, um, we're now... 22 locations, over 22 physicians in the group, and uh, it's been a fun ride. It's a, I think it, what it helps is when you have guys and ladies that work together that really enjoy what they do, providing care, getting optimal outcomes, getting excellence. Um, it just it breeds a, a beautiful culture and a, a fun time. Stick around. I got the full interview with Ketan Patel coming up next. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's CW. Thanks for joining us on the Top Docs Radio Show yet again today. I'm pleased to have in studio with us Ketan Patel, a podiatrist with Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia. I haven't had a chance to meet him yet until today, so uh, it's been a pleasure to sit and chat with you a little bit. So thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, CW. I've enjoyed the, the little time we've had together. It's been a lot of fun. I feel like I know you already. <laughs> well, you, you know, I, we were we were talking before we went on the air today how our two practices uh, overlap a little bit, and we end up con- uh, collaborating uh, here and there on particular types of patients. Um, and so I've had the pleasure of meeting one or two of your colleagues around the uh, the practice. Uh, still a few yet I haven't had a chance to to get to, to sit down with. So uh, it's a treat to have you join us today and tell your story and talk a little bit about your your focus on sports medicine and how you know folks like myself like to go out and. Uh, all right, I'm going to go training today. So I go out and uh, overdo it, and then I end up in your office, and you help me get back to work a little more quickly. You're my favorite patient. I love the weekend <laughs> <bet>. warrior. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, we, we were talking before we went on air uh, how how you kind of took this career path. You want to share a little bit about you know what what got your interest in medicine and and healthcare, and uh, ultimately you you went down this path uh, to to become uh, a specialist in in your field. Sure. Um, you know, as a kid, I, I probably as early as six, seven years of age, I knew that I wanted to get into medicine. Um, one of my favorite people that I looked up to as a kid was my uncle that was a general surgeon in Michigan. And then I have another uncle that's an internist here in Atlanta. And um, I used to kind of watch and observe them. And I thought it was a, a pretty nifty uh, occupation when you can go every day to work and um, help somebody out, make their life better and get paid reasonably well to do it. Um, and the respect level, it was pretty amazing to see how they gelled into their communities. And especially my uncle up in Michigan, he was in a town of 10,000 people. And he would just kind of freely go about the town and 
people would know him. They would identify with him and speak out to him. And um, to me, there was a, a nobleness to that. I thought that was, uh, for a little guy, you know, it, it's pretty uh, awe-inspiring. So I got to really thinking about it, and I said, oh, I want to be a doctor. But then uh, fast forward on to college, uh, you, when you start to develop as an adult, you start to realize what you need or what you want and how do you want to shape your life. And I really started examining the sacrifices my uncle made through his career. And it wasn't unusual for him to get up at 6 in the morning and come back at 11 or midnight. He was one of two general surgeons in town of 10,000 people. So he was always on call. I yeah. remember we went golfing one day and we were out all day playing and playing a couple holes and then uh, come home, we're playing cards. And at 11 o'clock, he gets the pager goes off <laughs> and his eyes are rolling. And I was like, oh, my goodness, this is you really got to like what you're doing if you're going to do this. So really started thinking about it. I was like, well, I enjoy family. I want to be around my kids and my wife. If she'll have me around, I definitely want to be around them. And uh, um, started looking at other options. And a friend of mine uh, here locally in Atlanta uh, worked for a local podiatrist. And she stated that she goes, hey, take a look at this. See what you think about it. And I went to go visit him, uh, Dr. Jimenez, who's out in Snellville, Georgia, and uh, spent some time with him. And I, it was amazing. He had everything. Yeah, he was he's a he coached uh, his kids' soccer teams. He was well active in his church. He's a noted author. He ran a residency program. Well noted surgeon. Very well respected. And I was like, man, this guy's got everything. Why can't I have that? And that's kind of how I got into podiatry. Uh, it's funny. I I remember so many. There's a lot of doctors. I think that. Once they get to the other end of the road, you know, when they're at the end of the rainbow and it's like, oh, wow, this isn't what I expected, uh, particularly these days. Um, I remember back when I worked in the hospital in nursing and, and uh, they were always talking about, um, I wish I'd gone into optometry. So that, that's another route for, for much the same reason. Yeah. Uh, I was At the time, those were ER physicians that, that were in there. I don't know, fourth year of residency, you know, yeah. they were just tired of it, beat down, just like you're talking about, just getting yeah. crushed with call. And and so, um, you know, I, I think it's nice to be able to have some options where you can do, as you're talking about, where you can interact with people, have a, uh, an impact on their life. You can take, in your case, uh, something that it's kind of, it's almost like dental care in a way. You can't get away from it. And, yeah. and you, you got to walk. And yeah. if you're having pain with with every step it's somewhat of a miserable situation so yeah. to be able to go into a field where you get to do all those things you get to do surgery you get to help people significantly with their quality of life and yet you, you get to have a life with your family they don't just get to enjoy the fruits of your labor they actually get to have you there too i can see yeah. why you would go that way yeah you want your cake and you want to eat it too i mean there's no doubt about it i i tell my friends all the time i feel like the little mouse that pulls the uh what was the thorn out of the lion's paw? I mean, it's just something simple that you do every day. It makes people better. One of my um, favorite memories when I knew that I'd done the right thing was a fourth-year medical student or a podiatry student, and we were in the VA in West Virginia and uh, had one of the veterans come in and uh, was treating him, and he had a simple little callus on the bottom of his feet. Mm -hmm. And I was shaving the callus and uh, did a pretty good job, got it all out for him, and uh, he steps down, very simple, routine thing that I do day on, day out. Nothing sexy about it. But uh, he stands down and he starts to tear up. And I'm looking at him and say, what happened? Did I say something wrong or did I offend you? And he's like, no, this is the first time in 20 years that I've stepped down without any pain. And for me, that was yeah. huge. That yeah. did, took me five minutes. Yeah. Um, that's an amazing feeling. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And and you've been in this line of work now since oh one oh two two thousand and one. Yeah. So you've been been going for a while now. Did you start 
here locally or did you start your practice here? Have you been doing your, after you got out of school and your training, were you here in Atlanta the whole time or? I was pretty fortunate. Um, I, was, I came to Atlanta in 2001. Before that, I was in residency in Baltimore, Maryland. I was um, I trained with a small hospital system called Bon Secours. Um, so I did a good portion of my rotations through the city. I spent some time at Hopkins, some time at the University of Maryland system. But um, Bon Secours was the sponsor simply because it was one of the first hospitals in Maryland that had uh, podiatry as a surgical specialty. So a lot of the the uh, podiatrists, the old timers, were still there working, and so you could get a lot of experience. So they sponsored. Uh, they had actually hired me as a resident, and I kind of did that work there. Prior to that, four years, I was in Cleveland, Ohio, at the Ohio College, and uh, they're affiliated with Case Western at the time in um, Cleveland Clinic. Today, they're actually part of the Kent University program. Um, so I had four years there, but uh, those four years taught me that I didn't want to live. Up in Cleveland, it was just too cold. No offense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, as soon as I started looking for jobs, I knew Atlanta was where I wanted to be. I was born and raised here. I'm, I'm a homer as Homer gets. Yeah. And uh, one so, of the few that I can know now. Yeah, uh, most of the people I know here are from someplace else. So you're myself included. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where Where are you from? Oklahoma. Oklahoma. My wife's from Chicago. Ah, <laughs> the Midwest. God, it's so cold. I'd, you guys I admire. I yeah. don't know how you do it. but yeah. uh, I actually miss the winter a little bit. Yeah, the breeze. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did have some. We were windier than Chicago, actually, in Oklahoma. And for you, I mean, I know that uh, Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia have been around for a long time, 30-plus years, um, over 20 locations around the metro. What made you land in the in, in this particular group? You know, I um, right out of residency, um, heading before graduation, I came down to Atlanta and started looking for opportunities. And uh, through some mutual friends, I got introduced to Joe Giovinco, who's the um, principal of the group. And Greg Alvarez was, I call him the second banana. Um, I was the fourth banana. In the group. <laughs> and um, I came in and uh, it was kind of neat. They were a nice size practice. They had seven locations and uh, only three physicians training. They really needed some help. And I was fortunate enough that they trusted me, and uh, it was just a good fit. You know, um, I still talk about her today. Joy Hagen is one of our staff members. She's been with the practice since inception. And I remember when I met her, I asked her how long she'd been with the practice, and when she told me, um, when she gives you a strong number like 20 years, you know there's something special about that place. Um, for her to stay around for 20-some years uh, showed a lot about the specialness of the practice, the family-oriented right. nature. Yeah, that's a big deal. That someone yeah. would stick with you that long. Yeah, the culture was really neat, and that's how I got into practice. And then after that, we're now 22 locations, over 22 physicians in the group, and uh, it's been a fun ride. It's uh, I think it, what it helps is when you have guys and g- ladies that work together that really enjoy what they do, providing care, getting optimal outcomes, getting excellence. It just it breeds a, a beautiful culture and a, a fun time. In your opinion, what do you think makes a good ankle and foot specialist. I mean, you know, when, when, cause I mean, there's just like, there's, a, there's a number of doctors to choose from. Um, there's a, a bunch of freestanding practices. There's a number of large practices out, outside of ankle and foot centers. So when someone goes to get something dealt with, cause typically not always, I mean, there are some people that are wise, uh, that, that may be at risk, say a diabetic, for example, that, that is, uh, clued in that they need to be proactive in the, in that space. But typically, I would say most of the people that are coming to you, seeking you out, are having some sort of issue. They're dealing with pain of some kind. Um, so for the, for that person, what do you think they should be looking for? You know, um, 
I think the number one trait that makes, you know, and we talk about this with the residents all the time. And, you know, my, my director used to always say, I can teach a monkey how to do surgery, but mm-hmm. I can't teach a monkey how to think. And I, and I even take that, that thought one step further. We all graduate from school. We have some level of academics excellence and we have some kind of intellectual aptitude, if you want to call it that. But at the end of the day, I think what separates it is, I remember one of my professors always said that if you listen to the patient, the patient will tell you what's wrong with them. And if they don't tell you what's wrong with them, they'll at least kind of hint you towards their diagnosis or what's bothering them. And that's the most important thing I think a physician should, that characteristic, is is the doctor listening to you? Mm-hmm. Is the doctor paying attention and not drawing conclusions and assumptions based on an an MRI or an X-ray, or because a couple helpful hints they just dropped a diagnosis on you. And I'm not alleging anything to any sure. other physicians, but I think we get so carried in our um, micro scheduling environment that we tend to expedite and right. be efficient as possible. And unfortunately, what gets lost in the process is listening to the patient. And I think that's where a lot of uh, good care comes from. There's so many times where a patient literally hands me the diagnosis. Or I may be barking up the wrong tree and the patient mentions something very subtly. And if I wasn't listening, I probably would have missed the whole boat on the whole diagnosis or how to treat them or how to solve their problem. If I'm going to be contacting some offices to try to find out who I want to go see, do you have some advice on what questions would be good to ask for a specialist? What do you think would help me make that choice? If I'm not lucky enough to to call your office? What should I be asking? Um, you know, I've always been big on board certification. You know, if somebody's board certified in their craft, whether it be podiatry, orthopedics, that's always a first place to start. Um, the second thing I always look at is residency programs. Um, the problem is, is if you're not in the profession, you don't know which are the better programs or which aren't the better programs. So then always word of mouth is not a bad thing. Um, the local folks in your your wherever you work or your community or your church, they'll usually will steer you in the right direction. You'd be surprised. And I always joke with my patients: they uh, if they come over and they say Mrs. Jones sent me over, and I'm like, great. And I I see Mrs. Jones the next time. I always thank them because I tell them that it's kind of a leap of faith. We'll we'll do just about anything for ourselves. We'll we'll go see another doctor, and if it doesn't work out, we'll go check out somebody else. But to send a family member or send a friend, it's a little nerve wracking because if it doesn't turn out well, that <laughs> yeah. friend's going to let you hear it. <laughs> That's right. Um, so I always tell my patients, you know, I appreciate the faith in me. And I think word of mouth has a lot of weight, if you will. Um, but, you know, from a clinical standpoint, you know, if that pa- that person has a, especially in podiatry, if they've been three-year trained, um, had a good residency program, typically now podiatry, most of the high-end residency programs are three years of training. And then... Uh, They've actually spent time at some major universities that are major institutions. It's going to play out well. And they're board certified, and board certification is tough to get. You can't just waltz through that. Mm-hmm. Um, that helps a lot. So for you and your practice, do you have particular areas? I know some folks like to focus on sports medicine, for example. Um, some providers that are ankle and foot specialists work a lot with, say, diabetic uh, patients that either have wounds that aren't healing well or or some bony deformities like uh, Charcot foot or, or others that can occur. Um, what about you in your clinical practice? Do you have a particular focus or are you kind of full gamut of, of issues that you deal with? You know, going back to your first question, that was one of the things that kind of appealed to me about podiatry is, you know, it's never just one segment. You know, you're the expert 
when it comes to the foot and ankle, whether it be a dermatological problem, skin conditions, whether it be I'm reading an x-ray or an MRI and doing radiological work, whether I'm doing surgical work and doing repairs of a tendon or an ankle fracture or a bunion, um, whether it goes to the point I'm being an endocrinologist and working with a diabetic with a severe diabetic issue, or maybe work with somebody with painful neuropathy, and now I'm a neurologist all of a sudden. I really enjoyed the fact that I was the one-stop shop and I could delve into different specialties. Um, so when it comes to my own practice, uh, you all, we all have our favorites, you know, even though my parents always said, no, we don't have favorites. <laughs> you do have favorites. <laughs> yeah. And uh, mine is sports medicine. I've really enjoyed sports medicine. Uh, I think it's the... Um, the immediateness of it. You can help somebody, get them treated, and they're back to their craft or back to their sport that they enjoyed. And the, um, from a selfish standpoint, the appreciation you receive from those folks is immense. It's, and uh, just something simple like, hey, I got to finally run that road race that I was dying to do. Thanks for helping for that tendonitis. Or, you know what, I've made an orthotic, just simple orthotic, and now they're able to, you know, uh, oh, you know kind of do away with the overuse syndromes that they've been struggling with. That, that makes it a lot of fun. And then also sports medicine right now in foot and ankle world, it's getting a lot of attention. It's, it didn't get much attention through the years. And so we're now seeing a lot of cutting-edge innovations that are starting to emerge, um, a lot of uh, technology that used to not support this kind of work. Um, so that's been fun for me because I'm a kind of a kid in a play store now. So I've got all these toys. <laughs> Foot and ankle specialist Ketan Patel of Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia is sitting with me in the studio. We're learning a little bit about his background and his passion for his work. And uh, you mentioned some technological advances. Can you share some things that are available now that you can work with that help you do your thing that much better? Maybe sometimes possibly even avoiding surgery if possible? Absolutely. Um, one of the favorite toys that we're playing with these days, I always call them toys, um, is amniotic graft tissue. And amniotic, when you start to study it, is pretty much um, mesenchymal cell technology. And what this all means is you, I'm sure there's a lot of talk out there and everybody's read about stem cells. And this is kind of a form of growth factors in stem cell technology. Mm -hmm. um, it started with uh, PRP, which is uh, platelet-enriched plasma. Um, about seven years or eight years ago, I, especially what got me to it was Tiger Woods when he was going to Europe to get these injections. And I was trying to figure out why is he going to Europe and what is so special about this injection. So that's when I started getting into growth factors and stem cells. And I actually started using it in my own practice. And what I was finding, it was very advantageous in helping heal chronic um, issues such as tendon problems, um, joint problems, ruptures and chronic tears of soft tissue. And um, But I was finding that the plasma was excellent, worked, had um, facilitated healing, and it expedited the the treatments, but it was it had some side effects such as scarring, um, some adhesions, things like that. So I started looking at other options, and a friend of mine mentioned amniotic graft tissue. And to go back to what I was uh, stomping around a, for uh, previously was amniotic graft. When you look at a baby being developed, that's the bubble that the baby develops in. It's it comes off the placenta, and it's a it's a nice thick robust lining of tissue that kind of protects the baby from the mother. So the mother's defense system doesn't attack the baby, and the baby's defense system doesn't attack mom. Um, and it provides a nice, stable environment for the baby to develop. So when when the baby's developed or a baby is delivered via C-section, 
This is what we commonly used to refer to as afterbirth. This is the, the tissues that come out with the placenta. Mm -hmm. And when they started to study this, and it was interesting, um, the dentist and uh, burn specialists were really on this back in the 60s and 70s. And they were using it for uh, burn tissue, uh, especially out in Augusta at the burn center out there. And um, Northside, believe it or not, happens to be one of the bigger harvest centers in the world for this. Uh, because it is the baby factory. So so I was going to ask, because it's not something I'm really all that versed in. I, I'm more familiar with the, the ones that use the the, the the foreskin cells to make the, the like uh, like a dermagraft or, a, or an ablograft. Those are where they're getting fiber, fibroblasts being the big driver and the growth hormones that go along with that. And But once they were able to start that culture, if you will, of cells, I guess it's been able to be maintained and expanded on obviously from there so with regards to the amniotic types of of uh, tissues i guess you're constantly having to collect that for production of of new tissue that they're going to use that's correct so it's harvested cleansed um, testing is performed on it and then those tissues are actually dehydrated through a cryo uh, preservation process um, some are actually freezed and cryopreserved naturally after cleansed and stripped of uh, any, uh, it's pretty much their immunity markers that are on these tissues. And these immunity markers kind of um, differentiate this tissue from host versus donor, if you will, meaning the recipient versus the person who's giving the tissues. So long story short, when they started looking at these tissues and they were using it on wounds such as burns, or they were using it on uh, dental procedures, they were finding that it was expediting healing. They were finding that it was regenerating tissue, and it was doing it in an anti-inflammatory um, method, meaning that the inflammatory processes we would see with repair were muted substantially. And that's what we typically see with pain. For instance, if you have an injury, the, you know, if, you've, if I was to slam my thumb in a door, my thumb gets red, hot, and swollen. And this is your body modulating a process called inflammation to try to repair the tissue. Um, what this tissue was doing was actually minute, minuting or um, muting is the word I'm trying to fumble for right now. Mutes the uh, inflammatory process, but leverages your body's ability to regenerate tissue and heal. And it does it in a scarless fashion. So um, when they first started to understand this was actually fetal surgeons. They would go in to remove tumors in babies that are still developing inside the, inside the womb. And the fetus, they had to use some kind of graft to actually heal the defect that was left. And they would use flap over the amniotic tissue over the baby. And, you know, fast forward six to eight weeks later when the baby's delivered, there was no scar. It, it appeared as if the baby never had surgery. And that became a very remarkable finding. Um, this and the name escapes me, but there was a a big pioneer surgeon in San Diego that did a lot of the pioneer work for this. And um, so when it was introduced to me, I started. It was actually introduced to me as a wound care product, mm -hmm. and I started using it as an injectable and actually sheets, just like we do with the product you were re recommending sure. or in the fetal foreskin grafts. Um, and they come in these little small sheets. So we'd put them over the wound, and all of a sudden, it, the wound would just it would deliver all the factors within it. And I'm being very vague right now. And the reason why is a lot of the research in Amion right now, they don't really know what's modulating it. They just know that 
whatever is being transferred from the graft, it's it's kind of sending signals to the body and leveraging the body's ability to heal itself. Mm -hmm. So when you look at this without being too jargony or complex about it, um, it leverages the entire healing cascade, if you will. Catherine Patel of Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia is with us. We're talking about some cool new technology or relatively recent technology that's being used to heal wounds that aren't healing, uh, actually being able to use tissue from uh, the amniotic sac, if you will, in the placenta uh, where, where infants are or fetuses are growing and developing till they're delivered. Uh, they're actually able to use the, the tissue from those grafts uh, that have been prepared in a, in a way that will heal particular wounds that aren't moving forward as they should. Now, would you use that mostly on a diabetic or are there other, I guess, sports injuries as well that you can use? Um, you're talking about it being injectable uh, as well. So maybe, a, say, Achilles tear or some other tendon type injury, maybe? You're hitting out of the ballpark. Okay. Absolutely. So these chronic injuries where the tendons degenerate or tear or rupture and they can't heal themselves. Because if you look at a tendon itself, it has a very tough time healing itself. And the reason why is it's null and void of vascular yeah, not, supply. Yeah no, yeah, no blood supply. No yeah. blood supply, right? So what happens is we inject this right into the tendon, and we're finding that the tendons actually regenerate themselves without scar. And that's been the problem with tendon repairs in the past for us physicians. Okay. We go back and repair a tendon, but we have to send them to physical therapy forever. And the reason why is that it scars and adheses. And with these uh, type of treatments, we're finding that the scar is minimal, the inflammatory process is minimal, and we're literally in some cases halving the recovery. So for instance, an Achilles that I would have to open up and repair, I'm no longer having to do that. I can oh, do it under awesome. ultrasound guidance and inject it. And so do you also, would you use that in conjunction in, in the event that you do have to go in and do an open type or some sort of surgical procedure, are you able to then instill some of this product along with that surgical procedure to help the surgery heal faster or no? Absolutely. We're using it in bunion surgery a lot of times to act as a biological barrier. So what I mean by that is we use the sheet. You know, the biggest problem with a bunion surgery is um, you get stiffness between the two bones. A, a joint is a space between two bones, and we're doing surgery on a joint. So a lot of times that you get a lot of fibrosis and you get a lot of scar tissue that forms around the joint lining. And it's that orthofibrosis is what we call in medicine, or the stiffness of the joint is hinders people's recovery and also causes pain after surgery. When we put a thin sheet of um, tissue like this between the capsule and the joint lining and in between the bones, what we're finding is that fibrosis process is minimized substantially. The joint motion is far preserved, better preserved, and now they're getting back in a functional rehabilitative manner very quickly and expeditiously. From a from the patient perspective, uh, when we you know I mentioned the 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 grabs that were derived from fetal foreskin um, or infant foreskin, whatever the case may be, but um, with those grafts, Insurance covered those and, um, you know, at least a big portion, but there could still be, on the patient side of things, a fair amount of cost. How does that compare with this? Is insurance covering that? And, you know, what's the patient exposure like when we go to that? You know, it's been pretty impressive. The insurances have jumped on board for this. Typically, they'll kind of wait and see on new technology. And I think some of the caveats are there's a actually some of the major amniotic tissue companies are here based out of Atlanta. Um Amiox and um, uh, Mimetics are the two big ones, players in the market in my mind. And um, my, they, I, Mimetics is one of them that is, they've been very smart about 
showing the insurance companies and the government that instead of using large sheets of paper that cost a large or large sheets of graph that cost right. a lot of money, yeah. they're making different sizes and making so you're not wasting. Right. Yeah, that's one of the big challenges with those other. Uh, if you want to keep them, say they're living. I mean, yeah. you know, one dermograph you have to keep frozen, for right. example. But you you can't if you don't use the whole piece. Right. You have to discard it. So it's a yeah. you can't mitigate the cost in any form or fashion. So you can with these newer products that you're talking about. That's correct. They do have shelf life. They're just, they can sit on a shelf. They've got a 10 year shelf life. If I remember correctly, I may be wrong on that number. Um, and you just open and use and they're, you know, it's perfect. You can use the perfect sizes you need for whatever wound you have, especially in my line of work, you know, wounds are usually small, uh, two to three centimeters. So you can use a 24 millimeter graft versus a two by three centimeter graft. And so now you're not wasting so much. And now all of a sudden, the you know the u- utility of it goes up all of a sudden you're not wasting. <laughs> what would you say the the most common sports injury that you run into would be uh, plantar fasciitis no doubt uh, Dealt heel with pain they've done that <laughs> changed my running stride and got rid of it for the most part yeah then i got morton's neuroma because i changed oh. to a midfoot striker and <laughs> i did it too quickly so. but talk about for the person who's not familiar or maybe they've heard of it but not sure exactly what it what it means what are we talking about um, plantar fasciitis is a strain of a thick fibrous band of tissue on the bottom of our foot known as a plantar fascia and the difference essentially between a fascia and a ligament is essentially nothing. You look under a microscope, they're exactly the same thing. A ligament attaches bone to bone. A fascia attaches bone to soft tissue. In this case, the plantar fascia links the bottom of the heel to the bottom of the ball of your foot. Mm-hmm. And so when you stand down and your arch flattens, of course, you, those of you at home can't see me flattening my hand out, yeah. but uh, as your arch flattens, the fascia strums. So a uh, runner like yourself, when you're out running, what you're doing is you're making new muscle. But there's a problem. When we hit our 30s and 40s, we all start to tighten and we start to lose a lot of our flexibility. And that's one of the biggest problems in sports injuries is flexibility and limberness. So as you lose the flexibility in your calf, the Achilles becomes tighter. And then the plantar fascia, which is attached to the Achilles, it also tightens. So now you start to strain a fascia that used to stretch out with your arch or at least tolerate that strain of the arch. And so you start to get tears and fascia degenerates. So we use things like amniotic graft tissue to help regenerate the, the fascia. And one of my favorite tools, and I was actually one of the first guys in the state to be certified for this, was extracorporeal shockwave therapy, ESWT. And what that is is concussion energy, where, you know, if you watch it. It's like they were using for uh, kidney stones, right? Absolutely. Lithotripsy. Um, it works brilliantly for this same condition. Mm. And it's no different than when you're trying to grill steaks. You're taking a thick piece of meat and you're actually either you're punching uh, little holes in it or most people take a hammer and hammer and tenderize the meat. Well, with, with ESWT, what you're doing is taking concussion energy, which is the echo you would hear like on a fireworks show. It's sound energy. That sound is harvested in a machine when it's produced and it's then transmitted through a water bladder. It goes through the skin down to the fascial lever lay, layer, sorry, and then the fascia actually starts to thin and stretch. Hmm. And this is done in one treatment, high energy, safely, very effectively. Does it hurt? You know, it does hurt. So we usually recommend some anesthetic for it, local anesthetic. Okay. Um, but there are folks that do it without a local anesthetic or anesthesia. So we do, you know, your CRNA, so monitor anesthesia care, which is just a mild sedative, um, and they do well with it. 
And so, I guess from a sensation perspective, would it feel kind of like it does when you're getting injected? Because I've had that done a couple of times. You know, if we weren't to anesthetize you, you know, we do about 3,800 pulses is what we call it. The first 1,200 pulses, you would just feel a tapping on the bottom of your foot. And it would be literally just tap, tap, Mm -hmm. tap. And eventually that tapping starts to sting after a while. And then the stinging starts to get to a pretty decent burn. I see. But you're never in excruciating pain. So that's for somebody who would didn't want to do anesthesia and be a hardcore, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but typically, you know, we just do a simple block in the area, a local anesthetic block, just like they would numb you up for a dental procedure. Is there, I mean, it seems to me, now my own personal experience, and I'm not a foot and ankle specialist by any stretch of the imagination, and as I mentioned, I've had overuse injuries both from a heel strike and then from a midfoot strike. But at least in my own personal experience, I was able to train away from my plantar fasciitis pain that I was experiencing, and it was pretty severe. I really thought that I was not going to be able to continue running. I mean, it was running on it with a nail in my in my foot, right? Um, but when I transitioned away, because I had been, you know, the when, when I was growing up, it was heel to toe, heel to toe. That's how you run. Um, but obviously, I don't know, this has probably been eight or nine years ago when the Vibram five fingers thing yeah. came out and everybody started wearing the monkey shoes, you know, the monkey feet shoes. <laughs> I had a pair of those myself. Uh, um, but I started reading about the midfoot strike uh, as, as a running style. And um, so I decided to, to give that a try. I just, the piece that I didn't do very well is I didn't go slow enough in transitioning over to midfoot strike. But from a, from the surgeon's perspective, mine was only just uh, going through an injury, trying to avoid having that injury recur. So I thought I would change my running style. Um, but do you have advice? I mean, is it is it six one way, half a dozen the other, or is one technically better than the other from a, a mechanical perspective? You know, when you look at mechanics, um, we've done a lot of studies on this now using force plates and. And unfortunately, the answer is it's inconclusive. We're not sure. Mm-hmm. So I, my recommendations to my patients have always been run naturally. Just run what's natural to you. And what I look at is I kind of go back and support your natural way of running. And that's done through an orthotic. I don't know if you you had the opportunity to try one or not. When I had the plantar fasciitis going on, I did, yes. And did it help? Some patients it does, some it doesn't. It did. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't say that it didn't contribute. Um, you know, I was able, uh, resting and, and then, like I say, changing the style of running for me certainly made a difference. I, I, but the, the combination of injections and orthotics for a period of time. Yeah. Um, Help me. I didn't continue to wear them. I, I wore them. I used uh, the orthotics for probably, I don't know, a couple of years. Yeah. You know, um, we're talking about ESWT, but you're, you're a perfect patient of this. It, 95% of the patients respond to simple conservative care, which are art supports, stretching, ice, anti-inflammatories, cortisone injections. And the reason why is plantar fasciitis typically is self-limiting. Um, if you wait long enough, it'll calm down. Um, so that's why I told patients, don't change anything. Just do what you enjoy. Continue to do your sport. Just spend a lot of time stretching before and after. I think that that's the piece where we weekend warriors, as you as you described, or or just, uh, you know, I'm, in, I'm approaching 50. Um, you know, older adults who get motivated. I was an athlete as a young man, and so I'm still an athlete at heart. So I'm, I'm ready to go train. So I know what to do. I'm going to go train. And just busting into a routine, the thing that I've begun to find after I've injured myself time and again here uh, over time with some overuse injuries is you can't be too conservative when it, yeah. it comes to 
breaking into, it doesn't really matter what the athletic venture is, but particularly yeah. pounding things like running. Right. Uh, or if you're going to go <laughs> yeah. jump into the flag football <laughs> league and, you know, you're in your mid thirties or beyond. Um, yeah. Those are things that you kind of have to ease into or you're setting yourself up. Sounds like for some overuse yeah. problems. I totally agree. That's the problem too much, too fast. You're absolutely correct. If you kind of, tr- you should be able to at any age, at any level, you should be able to work your way into an athletic endeavor. It's just a matter of kind of not doing too much too fast because we're so excited. We're so enthusiastic about kind of chaining our goals. Uh, a lot of times we forget that we should start from square one. Um, I'm 43. So I said, you know, I remember a couple of years back, I, the weight wasn't coming off like I wanted it. So I was like, okay, let me start running again. You know, and that's something I hadn't done since my late teens. And I remember the first day I kind of went out there and went, yeah, I'm sure I could probably knock out two miles. It should be a big deal. Right. Um, about a half mile into the run, I realized that I needed a cab. So <laughs> <laughs> What was hurting? <laughs> Everything. <laughs> I found muscles that I didn't know I had. <laughs> it's kind of surprising, really. And, and, and I had a, a gentleman on the show who is a physical trainer. And the thing that he kept talking about for this pain, for that pain, for back pain, for foot pain, for whatever you, you're dealing with, stretching. Yeah. That and and contralateral muscle group training. So yeah. if, if you're talking about your quads, you got to get your hamstrings strong and vice yeah. versa. Uh, but the thing he harped on over and over again was rolling, using the... Mm-hmm. Um, not just the foam rollers, but the, the, the we call them the torture stick. It's, it looks like a b- police baton with rollers on it um, to to achieve some of that stretch uh, he- heavily on the calves, heavily on yeah. the quads, heavily on the hamstrings to help avoid some of the issues that we're talking about yeah. here. The plantar fasciitis being one that seems to really be affected by having your calves stretched out very well. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, interestingly enough, um, I was told basically the same thing as far as the Morton's aroma that you can even reduce that occurrence by having your Achilles and calf stretched effectively. It, it's a very odd concept, but it is very true. Um, some of the new studies are interesting where we're showing that um, simply by clipping a ligament that strums the two metatarsal bones. So if you look at the front part of the foot, the middle part of the foot is comprised of five metatarsal bones. They look like drumsticks. And there's a ligament that attaches each to each side adjacent bone. Well, the nerve pierces between the two metatarsal bones. By just simply clicking, clipping that ligament and allowing the two bones to separate a little bit, is we're finding 90% success rates by just simply doing that. Um, and it's all, a, again, a, a tightness issue. Um, if you look at, if you follow the NBA, most of these athletes that have Achilles problems or uh, tendonitis problems, plantar fasciitis, it's all from tightness. And it, it is from lim- just staying limber. The funny thing is I didn't have to pay for that information. My high school track coach gave me that for free. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's funny. It's one of the one of the easiest things that we can do, yeah. that besides icing. My wife is very, very diligent with ice, and I, I'm terrible with it. Um, but it's so easy to not do it. Yeah. You yeah. Know, take that 10, 20 minutes to, yeah. to stretch. Yeah, we, we all do it. I, You know, for me, you're in traffic all day in Atlanta, and we all know how bad that can be, and then... You get home and you're like, great, I can't wait to hit the road and go for my run. And you're so excited about it. Music's blaring in your ears. You're ready to go. And uh, you're like, oh, I got to (laughs) stretch. That's right. I don't want to. I don't want to take the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I've been talking with Ketan Patel of Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia. We've been sharing some information about sports injury, I being a great example of how not to do it initially. I've injured myself a couple of times over time by going out and jumping on the road and having put on a few pounds, as you described your situation. Um, those two things put together some a period of inactivity, a period of no stretching, and uh, now I'm gimping around on a on a foot and I can't train. Don't worry, CW, you have plenty of company. Where a lot of us are out there. Like <laughs> I'm, that. I'm great for your business. <laughs> <laughs> Every year, the um, some of these warrior dashes and muddy buddies and those are amazing races because it's a lot of folks that are trying to get healthy again before the spring, and unfortunately, we see a lot of injuries during that time. It's it's rough. Now, something I heard about onychomycosis laser, what's what's that all about? You know, um, we just started uh, back in 2007, 2008. We were the first folks in the, to bring it into the southeast was using laser. And Am I saying it correctly? You're absolutely correct. Sweet. Onychomycosis, <laughs> and, which is commonly known as fungus of the nail. We've seen Jublia. all the cartoons. Jublia. <laughs> and then if you remember the old Lamisil monster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, what we found was laser light has actually been very effective in getting rid of the germ. And that's been the caveat with onychomycosis is uh, when you get the disease of the nail or the, the uh, fungal infection of the nail, it's not only a fungus infection of the nail itself, it's an infection of the, the nail bed. bed. Yeah. So it's been tough to find a medication that is strong enough to kill the germ but not hurt you when you ingest it. So the tablets have been tough. Um, topicals have been tough because trying to take a good polish or some kind of lacquer and get it to penetrate through the nail and get down to the nail bed, that's been also very Injections tough. would be a good way to go. You know, I've had so <laughs> many patients ask for that, and I'm like, do you really want me to torture you that Isn't way? Isn't that what they did back in the, in the war, back in the, in the old days? Yeah. Stick sticks up under your finger, uh, yeah. fingernails and toenails. Is that when the KGB would say, we have ways of making you talk? <laughs> yeah, that'd be one of them, I'm sure. <laughs> I, so now you're actually able to treat it with a laser, and the laser can actually penetrate through to the nail bed and help eradicate it. That's absolutely correct. What's, yeah. the, what's the process like? It's very quick and easy, no anesthesia required. You'll feel a gentle warming of the nails. Um, we always recommend a debridement of the nails, meaning just simply getting the nails filed down and get the girth down and get them reduced. And that's done by simple just debridement, just like clipping your nails. Well, I'm seeing the ads left and right. So how big of a problem is this? I mean, is it something that a ton of people are evidently dealing with? Or is it more that I can make a whole bunch of money for the people that are dealing with it if they use my Jubilee? Yeah, I, I don't know the exact <laughs> numbers, but it's we're talking tens of millions of people really? in the U.S. Is there something that predisposes me to it? You know, um, most of the folks we're seeing it is... Um, usually around warm, moist environments because fungus, it's a germ, and it loves warm, moist environments in general. So if you look at it, the predilection is actually in tropical countries like the Caribbean, but Georgia's no different because we're humid and hot and warm. And then we wear shoes, and that creates a warm, moist environment. So when these germs are everywhere, they're on our skin, they're also on um, in different environments. So they thrive in a spa, they thrive at a pool. Um, and so what's happening is, well, you'll get it somehow mechanically introduced into the, the nail. For instance, it could be simple rubbing of the nail in a shoe because your shoes are too short. And so you get this lefti- lifting of the nail right underneath the nail edge, and then it allows the germ to go underneath, and now it impregnates the nail bed, and you start to get the disease over a year. So am I able to avoid having to take those medications then if I come in for the laser treatment? Absolutely. And we're finding 85% success rates with this without any of the complications. 
Um, so there's actually a numerous number of uh, laser spas throughout the city. Um, but I always recommend to the patients kind of buyer beware. Um, they're not all been tested. They're not all FDA approved now. There's only one or two lasers now out that are FDA approved, and we're fortunate to have one of them. Now, if I'm one of the few uh, statistically that don't see a resolution on my first time around, is it something that you can come back and treat it again with the laser and potentially then achieve success after a second Absol- go or some, a repeat? Absolutely. And our protocol is such as that. Most okay. people in town um, do one one treatment and then I call them treat them and street them. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you get that re-inoculation or that reinfection over a year because you've got this thick, ruddy nail that's still rubbing in a shoe. So you get this auto-inoculation right back at it. So we recommend our patients come in four times. Every three months they come in, we reduce the nail again. And we we re vaporize it, rezap it again, mm-hmm. um, and the, the simple it's just a simple common sense thing. But I don't know why more people don't do it. A, it's very cost prohibitive and it it is con- time consuming. But I think it's well worth it. These patients are taking time and effort to fix it. The least we can do is kind of reciprocate. So with it being a fungus that's causing the infection of the nail bed, is it something that I can avoid somewhat if I'm using things like the you name the brand, uh, powders or sprays or things like that that treat your foot with if you're, particularly if you're somebody who's having to wear shoes that make your feet sweat a lot or you're a- athletically active, whatever the case may be, or you're traipsing around on a gym yeah. locker room floor, which are purely disgusting. Um, if you're treating yourself with yeah. one of those types of things, can you avoid it maybe? Or? Absolutely. CW, you claimed that you were an anesthesiologist, but you're masquerading around no, as a I was thinking. No, I got into nursing because I was looking at CRNA school. I never made it, made it that far. Okay. Uh, politics changed my course, but... Um, <laughs> But no, uh, yeah, just a just a yeah. background in the in the field a little gotcha. bit. But you, you're hitting it out of the ballpark. You're absolutely correct. Um, moisture is the big key. So sprinkling powder, um, using um, air, antiperspirant sprays, um, sprinkling um, antifungal powders to keep the moisture levels down are great. Notice when you spray your feet with uh, an antifungal solution, typically it'll turn like this cakey whitish uh, hue. And all that is is a powder, and that residue is actually absorbing moisture. So if you can control moisture limits, usually you're going to avoid kind of getting this kind of fungal infection. We always come in contact of it. The, what we need to do is try to avoid creating an environment for it to flourish. Well, I know that I have pulled you away from your office to join me here in the studio today. Um, before I let you get back to you know check on the patients in the office, do you have any kind of final thoughts before I get you back? I just appreciate being out here. It was an enjoyed conversation. I can't believe the time went by so fast. I know, man. I I got you talking about this and that, and uh, we got plenty left to talk about, so we'll have to have you back sometime. Talk about where folks can get linked up with you. You know, um, we're on the web. It's uh, www.ankleandfootcenters.com. That's centers with an S. Um, And uh, we're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. I'm I'm on LinkedIn. Um, And uh, we're also on Twitter, so follow us on Twitter. And their Twitter handle is AFCG, or I'm sorry, AFC Georgia. That's correct. And I'm tied in with them actually also. And if you're listening and you have not done so already, go to LinkedIn, or uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, but go to Twitter and Facebook. We're at Top Docs on BRX, T O P 
DOCS on BRX and follow us there. Then go over to the Top Docs Radio show page, and on the upper left-hand corner is the Apple icon, and you follow that over to the Top Docs Radio podcast on iTunes and subscribe to us so that every week you get to check in and hear the awesome healthcare experts that we're bringing to you every week from here around the Atlanta area. I've gotten to meet people from, I don't know, somewhere around 50 50 different practices. We partner with the uh, Medical Association of Georgia. We're always bringing you some great information around a host of health-related topics. So, um, Dr. Patel, I certainly appreciate you making time to join us in the studio, share your expertise, share a little bit about your story. I know that it's uh, information that people, when they're trying to get to know and decide where they want to go, having the opportunity to be able to click on a link to you talking about what you do, I think, is really valuable for those people. So it might help guide some folks to you. So I'm really pleased to help you get the word out about your practice and what you're doing. Well, I appreciate the opportunity, uh, CW, because it, it, it starts with you putting that out there for all of us. This is a great resource, and thank you for doing that. Well, make sure you follow the folks over at Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia and uh, do so with us as well. And uh, to Dr. Patel and his team, uh, I want to say thanks for letting him come out and join us. And for everybody who made us a part of your day today, we really appreciate you. Turn around and share this with your social media contacts. You never know. This information might just help somebody that you really care about, if not you. So uh, make an appointment to see us same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. 